Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. And man, never has it felt more like we are on the edge, maybe even over the edge of Armageddon. With big ups to my pal Rizza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. And I'm here on the Monday after the Friday when the United States Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade as law of the land and grace. My friend, my window into the Generation Z people also happens to be a woman and is really the co-founder of this podcast. I'm curious about, as we sit here on this Monday, having had a little time to absorb what happened on Friday, how are you feeling about a world without Roe? I feel prepared to fight an energized to move forward with what we can do to protect the rights of women because we had 53 days between the leaked opinion and the actual decision to grieve and to prepare for the emotional weight of this. So that's something that I chose to do with a little bit of foresight and unfortunately something that a lot of our leaders did not seem to do. So that's where the frustration comes in. So I'd say I I had already grieved it, but I am now frustrated and ready to fight. Frustrated and you got the gloves on, ready to go out and get in the ring and start throwing haymakers as you did on a number of social platforms, including Instagram and TikTok over the weekend. Anybody who wants to hear Grace's thoughts in the moment about this should go and check those out. They were very strong, very fire, my friend. You know, the good thing about the guests that we have on this episode of the podcast, Dan Pfeiffer and Alyssa Mastromonaco, two people who were with Barack Obama from the start on the campaign, were in the White House for all the first term and into the second term. Dan was communications director and then senior advisor. Alyssa was initially Barack Obama's scheduler and then became deputy White House chief of staff. They are longtime friends of mine. They're also members of the original Pod Save America team. They are two of the smartest people I know in politics. They were not taken aback or by surprise by this decision. And I know they agree with me, which is that one of the problems with, I will get in trouble for saying this, one of the problems with Democrats and progressives is that, you know, at a time over the course of 50 years where conservatives were like, eyes on the prize, like we're, this is a long, this is going to be a long struggle. We're going to eventually win. We have to rally. We have to mobilize. We have to be determined and patient. And Democrats were like, hey, this is a great talking point. Let's raise some money off this. But basically, Rose Law of the Land now, that'll never change. Like the kind of picture of complacency among a lot of progressives that this could just could never happen, which is why I think a lot of them were so surprised. No conservatives were surprised about this. They're like, we've been working on this for a long time. Democrats are like, wait, what? What? I don't know. It's like, that's got to change, it seems to me, on the left. If this battle is now going to shift in the way it should, people got to be like, you are like fired up and ready to go. Because we saw this coming from a million miles away. And it's like, how are all of these, you know, people have been in politics for 400 years because they're all 450 years old. How did you not see this coming? And then you see the response to it being, we have summer break for the next two weeks. So then after that, let's explore what a post-Roe future in America looks like. And it's like, hey, please hold your exploration off, Christopher Columbus. I would like an action plan that you guys should have come up up with in the meantime. Thank you very much. So urgency and competence are two things that I would really love to see moving forward. I will say that the one sense of surprise for Dan, Alyssa, and I was that it happened on Friday. I think a lot of us were expecting a Tuesday or Wednesday decision, like maybe this week. And so we got together to take the podcast on Friday, expecting to talk mostly about the conclusion of the, for now at least, of the 1-6 committee hearings and about Dan's fabulous new book, which is called Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. That's what we were supposed to talk about. And then the Roe decision comes down, and we were all kind of gut-punched, even though we all saw it coming, just the shock of it in that moment. I'm sure 
sure, at least even though you had been preparing, there was still like a little bit in that moment of like, yeah, we all saw this coming at least for the last 53 days, but still it felt like a sucker punch in some ways, or at least a, a, a stinging blow to the solar plexus. Absolutely. And it was not funny, but just kind of coincidental that I, I was supposed to not really work on Friday. I was actually supposed to have a rare day off. Woke up uh, after our editorial meeting and looked at my phone in the morning and my therapist had texted me being like, please take care of your nervous system today. It's the worst day ever. And I was like, what happened? Clearly not more shootings because this country doesn't respond to shootings in that way anymore. So I clearly knew I had missed something. So there was that initial shock of waking up to text messages being like, Grace, this is the issue that you speak about on Instagram more than anything else. Where are you? We need information. Please hope you're alive. And I was, and we jumped into action. But the surprise hit and then was like, let's get going. Dan and Alyssa are, I'll tell you what, what they were. They were clear eyed and fierce about like, who's to blame here and what comes next. I want to just give you a little condensed version of that to put a very fine point on it. Here's Dan Pfeiffer and Alyssa Mastromonico talking about who's to blame and what comes next when it comes to the fall of Roe. I mean, Mitch McConnell's a bad fucking guy and he has been a bad fucking guy for a long time. And he and his like federalist society pals, Brett Kavanaugh, um, you know, they've been laying the groundwork for this for 30 years. And the minute that he got close to power, or got the power, I guess as it would be, he used it. I would bet all the money I have, which is not necessarily a huge wager, but I would certainly bet it that if we are in a situation where in tw January of 2025, the Republicans have the House, the Senate and the White House, Mitch McConnell and all the other quote unquote institutionalists in the Republican Party will abolish the filibuster for the purpose of passing a nationwide Abortion ban, 100% guarantee. Dan and Alyssa, with all their experience, are, you know, look, it was a dark day. It's a dark time. But they're also optimists by nature. People who worked with Yes, We Can, the Change We Can Believe In, and the Hope Candidate, they still have a lot of that DNA. And so they moved very quickly in this podcast to, hey, th this is about the, the future of the democracy. The challenges are huge, but they are addressable. And so a fair amount of time we, on the podcast, we've been talking about what progressives need to do to meet this moment, to meet this challenge, drawing from a lot of the insights in Dan's book and Alyssa's just wisdom, kind of like, you know, how Democrats not just have to get their shit together, but how they can get their shit together with the right degree of focus and the right degree of motivation. This is not an insurmountable challenge. And I know that will give you at least, Grace, a little tiny bit of hope as we, a little tiny bit of reason to believe as we, if you, as you sit down, when you hear this podcast, you will feel good about that. Specificity is going to be our best friend moving forward. I think people crave good information, concrete steps, specific numbers, specific places of candidates that they can show up for and put money behind. Specificity, as AOC actually talked about it in an amazing Twitter thread yesterday, we need the specifics of how to move forward because platitudes and lofty dreams of what could have been are not going to save us in this environment. All right. So let's get into the specifics and hear from Alyssa Mastromonaco and Dan Pfeiffer. Dan's New book is called Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media are Destroying America. If you could have a longer subtitle, I would say How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media are Destroying in America, and what those of us who still believe in democracy can do to keep America from descending even further into hell and high water. Today, the Supreme Court of the United States expressly took away 
a constitutional right from the American people that it had already recognized. They didn't limit it. They simply took it away. That's never been done to a right so important to so many Americans. But they did it. It's a sad day for the court and for the country. This is not over. Dan Pfeiffer, Alyssa Mastromonaco, it's great to see you both. I was looking forward to having a kind of cheerful time with the two of you because <laughs> of, the, of the, all of the, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, Dan and Alyssa are like BFFs and the warmth that radiates from this relationship and their constant burning up of a text thread that I believe is probably now about 400 miles long. It would probably like go to the stretch of the <laughs> sun, but it's, it's, it's a grim day here. By the time this podcast comes out, this will be a little bit in the rearview mirror, but it is Friday, June 24th, and we're talking on the day that Joe Biden said those words um, only a few hours after the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. So it's a place we kind of unavoidably have to start. So I ask you, Alyssa, just to start with me because you are the one person with a uterus in this group. Thank you so much. And, and I do. And I, I profoundly think that Joe Biden was right when he says that this is a right taken away from all Americans, not just from American women, because I think men are obviously should be and should consider themselves part of the reproductive process as they are and should care about this as much, almost as much as women do. How do you feel about it? We've known for a little while now this is coming, but I found myself still just like, I still felt like gut punched, even though there's nothing surprising about it. We had the leaked opinion. We've had a sense this was going to come for at least now almost two months. What's your reaction? So, I mean, look, we knew it was going to come. I guess I thought maybe in my deepest, most hopeful place that the court seeing the outrage a month ago or however long it was might have been like, maybe we should rethink this. But, you know, they didn't. It was as extreme a ruling as could have been. I was genuinely sick to my stomach about it, you know, genuinely sick to my stomach because this is I mean, it's it's incredible. Like none of us have lived in a world without row. And now our kids and nieces and nephews are like, I don't know, up Shit's Creek unless we keep fighting and people feel tired. And so I don't know. Wasn't great. Wasn't great, Heilman. I mean, I guess that's the question, Dan. Well, I always had these conversations where I end up jumping to the politics of it because I don't think it's trivializing to talk about the politics of it. Yeah. It does seem like if you listen to what Joe Biden said, what every Democratic legislator is on television saying all today and will be saying for the next week, which is this is now a fight. This is now a war. That's about politics. We can all basically say this obviously has a huge effect on health care for tens of millions of American women, and it's horrifying for them. But now what to do about it, right? What Alyssa just suggested, which is people are tired. Are they tired or is this the thing that is like galvanizing, energizing, motivating, and where people say, okay, like we have to change shit now? One of the challenges that Democrats have had for the last year and a half or so is getting the coalition that won the House for us in 2018, won the Senate and the White House for in 2020 to stay engaged. Right. To recognize that even without Donald Trump in the White House, that the stakes are still high. And this is an answer to the question of why we have to vote, why we have to stay engaged. It can feel totally trivial to talk about the politics because women's lives are at risk because of this decision. There are people who will not have access to life-saving health care, right? People who will go through untold tragedy. I was reading a story about how some states are going to think about investigating miscarriages to see if they were because of abortion services. Like, that is a horrifying thing. Ultimately, how many people are affected by the decision is something to be decided by politics, right? Whether we can, as Joe Biden said in his remarks, elect two more senators, give her the filibuster, and pass a federal right to abortion services, or just within states, right? Like if we reelect Democratic governors in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, that's going to make a gigantic difference to how this decision is implemented in those states. You know, a Democratic governor in Georgia is going to make a gigantic difference. And so the number of people affected by this is going to be determined by politics, both in the short and the long term. 
in the couple last couple months when you would want to talk about the politics of this, some people would say to you, don't trivialize this. This is a profound thing, either about jurisprudence or about women's health care and rights. There's a lot of people talking about what to do about the Supreme Court? Should the court be expanded? Is there really going to be a movement for that? You know, how do we fight back against the Supreme Court? Literally language I've never heard, right? Even though I've lived longer than both of you, and I've heard many people be very upset at the court at various times, you've never really heard in the normal rhetoric of American politics, people saying we must resist the court, you know, and there's people on television as we speak right now. I don't know what they mean by that exactly. I really don't. I'm not being sarcastic. I don't know exactly what they mean, but that's the kind of flavor of it right now. There's a resistance quality to it that echoes the early and then later periods of Trump. And so I don't know, Alyssa, does that like, what does that mean to you when you hear people say, I just refuse to accept the legitimacy of this court? We're not going to accept this ruling. Uh, Is that just rage or is there something that could come out of that? I mean, I think it's rage. I think it's sort of I mean, it's helpful because if you if you think I don't accept this, you have hope that you can change it, I guess, even though I guess if you say you don't accept it, then what you have to change. But anyway, I think it's just too much to really take in at the moment. We have a court that represents a minority view. I mean, only 40 percent of people in this country have been against abortion. And that's been like pretty long standing. So it feels like these nine people have imposed their will on the whole country. And so I think that the resistance of it is kind of just the mindset that people need to deal with this right now. So let's listen to Pelosi right in the aftermath of the Supreme Court announcing its decision, trying to just say as clearly as possible what exactly this decision means. Today, the Republican-controlled Supreme Court has achieved their dark, extreme goal of ripping away a woman's right to make their own reproductive health decisions. Because of Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and the Republican Party, their supermajority in the Supreme Court, American women today have less freedom than their mothers. With Roe and their attempt to destroy it, radical Republicans are charging ahead with their crusade to criminalize health freedom. In the Congress, Be aware of this. The Republicans are plotting a nationwide abortion ban. They cannot be allowed to have a majority in the Congress to do that. But that's their goal. Dan, is that their goal? Absolutely. I would bet all the money I have, which is not necessarily a huge wager, but Hmm. I would certainly bet it that if we are in a situation where in January of 2025, the Republicans have the House, the Senate and the White House, Mitch McConnell and all the other quote unquote institutionalists in the Republican Party will abolish the filibuster for the purpose of passing a nationwide abortion ban. 100% guarantee all of the political forces put in that direction. You just can't even imagine a world in which a small number of Republican senators would ban with Democrats to prevent that from happening. So I think that is exactly what we are staring at. And this is the beginning, right? This is the beginning of a much larger, more aggressive war in, in which Thomas previews in his concurrence today on the right to privacy in this country, whether it is marriage equality, contraception, all of the above, the very idea of the right to privacy. Thomas suggests the idea that they should revisit that idea. And that is at the core of Republicans using a rigged Supreme Court, gerrymandering, a Senate that dramatically just gives them disproportionate political power to put forward an agenda that runs in the exact opposite direction of where the American people have been going for decades on these issues, right? While it is true that support on the question of choice 
has been pretty steady for a long period of time. But on whether Roe v. Wade should remain the law of the land has actually grown significantly. Like in Pew polling, it's gained 10 points in the last you know, 8 to 20 years. And so the only way to stop this is to work outside of institutions that demand you reach a majority of the American people. And so that's exactly what they are going for. And if Democrats do not scream loudly about this, we're going to wake up in three years and live in that reality. So I don't disagree with that as an analysis of what they will try to do and and what they want to do. If you could have a, a serious conversation about a minority party having a chance at implementing an agenda which is not considered acceptable by 70% roughly of the countries for Roe. It's not as overwhelming as the support for most common sense gun reform, but it's very large, right? If I described to you a country that had a, a quote, democratic system in which you said, yes, there's a reasonable prospect that the minority party that's lost the popular vote at the presidential level in five of the last six elections could somehow have a shot at controlling something as fundamental as women's health care against the will of two-thirds to three-quarters of the American people, you would say, well, that's not a democracy, right? It's not a democracy, no. I mean, it's not. That's it's not. It's not. It's right? not. I mean, it's no. I mean, I, I mean, it's, I mean, that's not just spoil sport liberal whining. Right. In a textbook, if I taught that political science class on planet Mars, the students there would not say, oh, yes, that describes a democracy as I understand it. No, I mean, I think most countries around the world right now are like, you should check yourself before you wreck yourself when you try to tell us about ourselves. <laughs> like, I mean, think about it. Five of the, the six justices in that decision were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. Yeah, so they were confirmed by a Senate that represents a fraction of the overall population of the country. Right. And in the past, the court has tried to not swim aggressively against public opinion, but they're now doing it at a place when they were at their lowest legitimacy in the history of the court. Right. These are the things that tear at the fabric of democracy. Yeah. And we're going to live with this court for decades. Like I say this incredibly depressing fact all the time, but when Brett Kavanaugh is the age that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was when she passed away, my four-year-old daughter is going to be in her mid-30s. Like we're going to be stuck with this for a long time. Yeah. And that just creates an incredible tension absent some sort of reform that may be unreconcilable. I mentioned in the introduction of the podcast that Dan's the author of now his third book, Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. And it's a book about messaging. And that's what Dan is, a message maestro, right? But this problem- <laughs> Sort of, I, yeah. And I, as you know, I don't think to talk about politics is trivial. And you and I, over the many years, have talked about messaging a lot. In politics, messaging is crucial. I don't dismiss it. But it does seem like the things that we're getting to very quickly here are these matters that messaging can even address? Seems like so much more fundamental structural problems in the way the whole thing's set up. The way in which the structural flaws, I would say, in our system have been exploited by the Republican Party systematically over the course of the last 20 years at least. It's like, I mean, a better messaging apparatus for Democrats would help, but it's not clear that's really gets anywhere close to really solving the problem. No, what Democrats need to do and 90 whatever percent of Democrats agree with is we need structural political reform to realign our system of government with majority rule. Yeah. And whether that is getting rid of the filibuster, whether that would have been legislation to ban partisan gerrymandering, whether it would have been attempts to rein in dark money in politics, making D.C. a state, all of those things were on the table. And every Democrat supported most of those items except for two Democrats were unwilling to change the filibuster to do it. Like there is no messaging. Better messaging can help us go get two additional Democrats in this election to put us in a position to actually implement that agenda. But ultimately, the only way to sort of recalibrate politics with the growing 
progressive majority in this country is structural political reform that removes some of the veto power of the shrinking minority. That's what we have to do. You know, if you would ask me five years ago whether most Democrats would agree with that, I would say absolutely not. That has changed dramatically in the last two or three years. But we have these two Democrats who are standing in the way of like 95 percent of that agenda. Yes. I mean, obviously, that then does come back to a messaging thing, because if you're trying to make an argument for something like structural reform, the question of how you make that argument, and how you win that argument is obviously pretty crucial. And I guess, Alyssa, back, you know, not that long ago, back in the Obama era, which now is, is not that long ago, <laughs> but seems like about a million years ago, right? Yeah. People that we know who were somewhere moderate left institutionalists who would never have contemplated the idea of making it possible to expand the size of the Supreme Court are now on board with that program, abolishing the Electoral College. They're on board with that program, all of these programs. And part of it has to do with, I would say, Mitch McConnell, Mm. more than almost anything else. Is there a single person in Washington who's done more to light the fire of this kind of reform under Democrats and at the same time delegitimize the Supreme Court? through his jiggery pokery around Merrick Garland and his hypocrisy around Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, he's obviously achieved a lot of short-term and maybe long-term, to Dan's point about the court, of his objectives. But at the same time, if the, all the things that Dan's talking about get traction, a lot of it points back to McConnell and people going, man, he has really fucked us. Yeah. I mean, Mitch McConnell's a bad fucking guy and he has been a bad fucking guy for a long time. And he and his like Federalist Society pals, Brett Kavanaugh, they've been laying the groundwork for this for 30 years. And the minute that he got close to power, got the power, I guess as it would be, he used it, which is why anything like, oh, we shouldn't do the filibuster because then it gives them the excuse. They're going to do it. Like Mitch McConnell, if he is Senate majority, leader is going to do whatever he can do to make sure that something, for example, like abortion is nationally banned. I'm stoked that he voted for like some modest gun reforms. Okay, but he admitted it was politically in his interest to do so. He has been working this beat for a long time. And there is no denying that if the Republicans take the Senate back in the fall, that he will literally take the plan that he has been working for the past 30 years and run through the tape. And yes, Howman, I'm glad to have this therapy session about Mitch McConnell because, yes, he's a bad fucking guy and it is mostly his fault. I don't, I don't want to play the role of, of Alyssa's father confessor, but today I'm playing the role of her. Yes. I'm playing the role of I'm playing the role of shrink today instead. Dan, you're about to say, say something. I don't want to cut you I, off. I was going to say, the thing that's interesting about Mitch McConnell is name one thing that Mitch McConnell cares about. There's no Mitch McConnell policy agenda. Right. He's not been running around like Paul Ryan trying to privatize healthcare and social security. He is not a neoconservative war hawk. He's not a Christian fundamentalist who's been cared about abortion and gay rights. He cares about only one thing, power. The two things that he has spent most of his career on are undoing the 1972 campaign finance reforms because he thought that was good for Republicans. I mean, it is McConnell versus FEC is the original case that put us down this path. And then is the court because that is about Republican power because as much I promise you this, in Mitch McConnell's heart of hearts, he cares much more, like if he's ranking his achievements with the court, what John Roberts, yes, and John Roberts has done to gut the Voting Rights Act is much more significant and important to Mitch McConnell than abortion or guns, because that is the thing that allows him to keep appointing 
justices. It has allowed a lot, a lot of these sort of suppression laws that gave him his justices to exist. That has always been like the asymmetry in politics to me is that Democrats tend to view political power as a means to a policy end, and Republicans right. tend to view it as an end in of itself. In itself so it's power yeah. for the sake of more power. There's this polling that was out just this morning about the Supreme Court being at its lowest level of legitimacy ever. I was asked about it on TV, and I was like, well, it's because the people in the country think the court's corrupt, and they're right. It's become part of partisan politics, whether it's the Ginny Thomas thing yeah. or just the things that McConnell has done to get people on the court. Mm. There's nobody is under any illusion that the court is somehow above, apart from, aside from politics. It's operating as all, in the same way that our legislative body and our executive body now act, purely partisan, a tool of power. Dan mentioned these justices. These All these are Trump justices here. We will hear from Neil Gorsuch. We'll hear from Brett Kavanaugh, mm. Samuel Alito, not a Trump justice, but we'll hear from him anyway, because here are three of the, the core members of this six part conservative majority for tearing away Roe v. Wade, destroying it. And I would say for ending stare decisis as we know it on the court. So let's listen to what all of those folks had to say about the role of precedent when it comes to the Supreme Court, how important it is and how they would hew to it. Oh, they would definitely stick with precedent, they said in their confirmation hearings when they were asked, as they were many times, about Roe v. Wade. Senator, again, I would tell you that Roe v. Wade decided in 1973 is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It has been reaffirmed. The Supreme Court of the United States has held in Roe v. Wade that um, a fetus is not a person for purposes of the 14th Amendment. And the book explains that. Do you accept that? That's the law of the land. I accept the law of the land, Senator, yes. It is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Been reaffirmed many times. Casey is precedent on precedent, which itself is an important factor. And it's the principle that uh, that courts in general should follow their, their past precedents. And it's important for a variety of reasons. It's important because it limits the power of the, of the judiciary. It's important because it protects reliance interests. And it's important because it, ref it reflects the view that courts should respect the judgments and the wisdom that are embodied in prior judicial decisions. That's the guy who wrote this opinion, right? Alyssa, is there any way to hear those three guys other than having the reaction, which is you lying motherfuckers. You just lie. You just lied to the United States Congress. Like there's no there's a lot of obscuring and a lot of vagueness and a lot of opacity that goes on, as you guys both know, when you try to get through a Supreme Court confirmation hearing or any confirmation hearing where you try to hide the ball. Those are pretty straightforward statements of I believe in precedent. Of course, I can't say I won't, but I'm leaning really hard into the notion that if I respect precedent, I'm obviously going to respect the law of the land, senators. Roe v. Wade is, of course, safe under me. They come pretty close to saying that. And it seems like a bold-faced lie to me on the part of all three of them at this point. So here's one of the things that through our many years of friendship that Pfeiffer has always said about me, which is that one of the most amazing things about me is that I'm consistently disappointed by people who will only disappoint me. And so when they said that, I was of the mind when they did their hearings that like, I mean, they're saying it before Congress. It's not even like when Susan Collins came out and was like, listen, Brett told me we're good. You know, like they said it but in their fucking confirmation hearing. And so, no, Heilman, it is just a lie. It's a lie before Congress. I don't know. I feel like I need to consult law and order. I feel like that's perjury, but I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know for sure. 
And, and Dan, that is my question. There have been some members of the Senate who have expressed outrage and, and have said something not quite as blunt as what I said, or at least not as profane, but essentially have been like, we were lied to. And is there anything that the body can do the hallowed upper chamber, the world's greatest deliberative body, supposedly, not anymore. Is there anything they can do about that? What would you suggest they do if somebody came to you and said, hey, we can't keep getting lied to by Supreme Court justices or if this is going to be the outcome? What would you do about it? I mean, right. There's a little bit of a conversation on Twitter about whether the House should undertake impeachment proceedings because you could impeach a Supreme Court justice and it would require two thirds of the Senate to remove them, which is obviously not going to happen. I mean, I didn't believe that they believed it when they said it. Like, I obviously knew they were lying. Like, Brett Kavanaugh has a long history of lying. Like, no one should be surprised by that. But I think that to the extent up until the moment when Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed, this idea that even if they wanted to overturn Roe, they would not do it because it was terrible politics was sort of the issue. Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are different in the sense that some Democrats voted for Gorsuch based on that lie. In Kavanaugh, almost no Democrats voted, other than Manchin, voted for Kavanaugh based on that lie. I mean, obviously Susan Collins did. And so you have to call it out. I mean, I think there, you could theoretically do some sort of censure of them for lying to it. It's just a way to keep the issue in the news. And there's something interesting about that. Mm. Um, one of the things that's so frustrating about so much of what has happened in the last many years is you feel powerless from it, right? It's like bad people did bad things and we have almost no tools to hold them accountable for it. It's not un- disconnected from the exact thing that's happening on the other side of the chamber with the January 6th hearings, right? Where we have all these obviously criminal things and it's not yet clear whether they will pay any price for that. You, you guys exited the White House roughly the same time. Who went first? I can't remember now. I went first. Alyssa went first. Alyssa I went, went a year first. later, basically. Okay, so right. Neither one of you guys were around for the Garland thing, right? So you were both no. on the outside no. when that happened. Yeah. You both know President Obama pretty well. Do you have any insight, contemporaneous insight or, or a retrospective insight on his part, whether... When this thing happened, which, of course, he was insanely frustrated by the notion that McConnell was going to deny him a hearing that he clearly, by all historical precedents, deserved to have for Garland, that he understood that it was the beginning of something very dark. Not that Mitch McConnell had ever done anything dark or power hungry before, but that was so egregious. The fact that he got away with it, paid no price for it, emboldened him to do more things like that. It still feels to me like that's part of a story that leads to this ruling in the case that that's now ripped down Roe v. Wade. Do you guys have a sense whether the president had a premonition that this was not just he was losing a Supreme Court justice, but a larger wickedness was stirring around this topic? I feel like it was just the continuation of the wickedness. I feel like what McConnell did was not surprising, right? I mean, when Barack Obama on the eve of his inauguration, Mitch McConnell was like, my only goal in life is to make him a one term president. He didn't really do anything to ever work with us or help us. We all know that the only thing that Mitch McConnell cares about is the court. And so I don't think that it was the beginning as much as sort of like a milestone, I guess. I was not naive about Mitch McConnell, but I was still a little surprised that he didn't give Merrick Garland even a hearing. I was. I I don't know that I was not surprised that he did not. I was not surprised when he initially announced that. Well, he said it because it was so obviously in his interest. I sort of thought in the moment that you would be able to bring to bear more pressure on the large number of Republican senators who were up for reelection in what we believe to be heading into that presidential election, some pretty solidly blue states that Hillary Clinton would carry right. by large margins, right. whether it was Pat Toomey or Ron Johnson, because that that was the 20 
2010 Senate class who had ridden waves that should never have existed in 2010 to get there. And they really thought that they would be washed out in a presidential election year. But I think that was the context and the frustration was not that Mitch McConnell did a bad thing. It's that the limited levers that even incredibly popular president has right. to put public pressure on people whose political incentive should have been to fold there. How that all played out, I believe there's nothing Barack Obama could have done to force Mitch McConnell to do that, whether he had appointed Merrick Garland to that position or right. a hologram of Thurgood Marshall or Ketanji Brown-Jackson, like <laughs> Mitch McConnell made his decision and he has the power to hold it. Mm-hmm. What I think everyone missed in the moment, sort of like the original sin of so much of the Trump era is everyone assumed, I think maybe even Mitch McConnell assumed this was a performative act because Hillary right. Clinton was obviously going to beat Donald Trump. And yes. therefore, all he would have done is delay the confirmation of a position for six months or nine months or whatever right. it was. And President Hillary yeah. Clinton would have appointed it and the court would have maintained some sense of normalcy. But once that happened and then Trump won, and then when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, now we're in a position where he has no other option other than to do what he did. And now the court is at a point from which it may never recover. All right, we are going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of Dan Pfeiffer and Alyssa Mastromonaco here on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and High Water. I'm going to play one more person talking about abortion, but really as a purpose to transition to our next part of our conversation. A voice from the past, a young man running for president in 2008, talking, oh to, talking to Rick Warren. John uh, Edwards. Uh, 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 yeah. Bring John, him back. Who, John who? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Here's that young man, strikingly handsome, deliberative, very suave, very smooth, talking about abortion in August of 2008, I believe, at Rick Warren's megachurch. I am pro-choice. I believe in Roe versus Wade. And, and I, I come to that conclusion not because I'm pro-abortion, mm-hmm. but because... Ultimately, I don't think women make these decisions casually. I think they, they wrestle with these things in profound ways, in consultation with their pastors or their uh, spouses or their, their, their doctors, their family members. Um, and so for me, the goal right now should be, and this is where I think we can find common ground, and by the way, I've now inserted this into the Democratic Party platform, uh-huh. is how do we reduce the number of abortions. Because the fact is, is that uh, although we've had a president who's opposed to abortion over the last eight years, abortions have not gone down. Talk about a time capsule, because, you know, one of the many ways in which we all think to ourselves that Barack Obama were trying to survive in today's political environment and today's Democratic Party, he'd be beaten with sticks by the progressive left, because you're not allowed to say what he said there anymore. Right, Alyssa? You can't now say- No, you shouldn't say that anymore. Right, you can't now say safe, legal, and rare. If I say, well, Bill Clinton had that great formulation, safe, legal, and rare. Yeah, I I wouldn't even say that. Well, I know that's what I'm saying. I get progressive women up in my shit saying, why should they be rare? (laughs) Pro-choice is even now criticized by some as being a weasel word, right? We have to be pro-abortion rights. Is that true? I mean, do you think- I'm not taking issue with it. I'm more just saying time has moved, but time has moved on. To time, the point has where, moved. time has moved. Well, time has that, moved. That's a time that capsule is... thing. You listen to him and he sounds more like Bill Clinton there than he does like a modern Democrat. I'm pro-choice, but not because I'm pro-abortion. And I want to see the number of abortions reduced. And I put that in the Democratic platform. That's a very down the middle kind of a place to live. And it does kind of take you back to a time when that was the way we talked about issues, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Alyssa, Alyssa doesn't want to doesn't want to criticize her former boss. No, um, that's not it. I mean, it's like, look, we've all come a long way. Like I said, hmm. shit in two thousand eight, I wouldn't want recorded now and played back yeah. to me. But well, um, I have I have a lot of those. We could spend all day with. That. I know. <laughs> right. I'm sure. I know. Where you and all your up the interviews from Game Change. You're in real trouble. Oh boy. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but no, I was in the Senate office with him. We actually yeah. had conversations about this, which and like he knew I didn't agree, but yeah. that's it's how he felt. He was also at a church, Heilman. <laughs> yeah, well, I understand. Well, what, that, that, see, whenever we, people, whenever you guys do that, it always makes me think you're actually undercutting the sincerity. You're saying he was he was saying something tailored to the to the no, place. that's no, he that's really how he felt. It? He wasn't yes. he wasn't okay. pro-abortion. He was for a woman's right to choose. And right. let me tell you, if the court just felt that way, I'd be fine with it right now. Dan, what do you think about that? I want to ask you a messaging question because you are the author of Battling the Big Lie, how Fox, Facebook and the MAGA media are destroying America. And a lot of it is about how Democrats need to do better in terms of framing their arguments and defeating the disinformation, misinformation, bullshit, mendacity of Republicans. You've been making this argument in message box about Democrats need to pull all these threads together and have a unified field of messaging if they're going to have any chance of winning these midterms. How does this abortion decision how do you think about that? How does that become woven into the tapestry that you're suggesting Democrats should go forward with towards the midterms? Now that we have the decision, it feels like an earthquake, even yep. though we knew it was coming. What do you do with that? This decision is the product of an extreme, radical, MAGA minority in this country that will do anything and everything to hold on power from suppressing your vote to overturning an election, to supporting violence. And you can apply that that is why they are overturning Roe v. Wade. It's why they are have opposed incredibly popular bipartisan measures to keep guns off the street. It's why they are trying to ban books, why they are coming after marriage equality next. This extreme minority is trying to implement their radical agenda. They want to tell you who to love, what to read, what teachers can teach, and they want the government involved in your personal health care decisions. It is an assault on freedom and privacy. And I think the two elements of this, and smarter people with more access to better data will, can, can fine-tune the words, whatever, is that we have to expose how radical this faction is, that they will do anything and everything to hold on to power, which is what ties to January 6th, and that they are a minority. We tend to buy into the premise that we are a 50-50 country and we just disagree. Red America and blue America, and just sometimes red wins and sometimes blue wins. That's not the case. We have a growing, progressive, pro-democracy, pro-truth majority in this country. And we have this radical minority that is doing anything they possibly can to hold on to the power they think they're losing because of that change. I think you fit it into that. There's a whole bunch of other issues that fit under that tapestry. But I think abortion may be the most resonant, evocative way to do it in the time. Because think about it this way. On Thursday, the Supreme Court invented an entirely new constitutional right to carry a gun in public. On Wednesday, that was not a constitutional right in this country. On Thursday, you can carry a gun in public. The Constitution says so. On Friday, the right to access to an abortion that's been on the books for 50 years goes away. The majority of the country does not support either of those things, and Republicans did it anyway. And they will do more things like that if they get power. And it makes your head spin because, of course, the notion that in two consecutive days, the court basically said, you know what? The Supreme Court needs to step in and take the right to regulate guns away from states. 
then the next state comes out and says, you know, but we need to give all the rights to regulate women's bodies back to states. It's just madness, right? And it tells you how kind of utilitarian and Machiavellian what they call principles on these things are. Alyssa, here's my question, because I, I played Obama for a reason. As you know, I like watching old, old stuff. And I do have a whole private cache of like Dan's television appearances from 2007. <laughs> I think I may even have video of Dan from his time working for Evan Bayh. Dan, yeah. so like if, I, if I raise it, he may excommunicate me, never speak to me again. <laughs> if I tell everybody, hey, hey, guess what? Dan Pfeiffer used to work for Evan Bayh, just like, uh, it's not- <laughs> That's it's, how we met. I know. Well, that's yeah, my question. Yeah. I wanted to ask this question because you started your life in politics work for Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. And Dan, I know, worked a little bit for Gore in 2000, but really, yeah. like, Evan Bayh is the way I really first think of you. And the yep. idea that a former Sanders person and a former Evan Bayh person would come together, as part of speaking to the power of Barack Obama, they could bring the two of you together and make a friendship that will last a lifetime. <laughs> tell, me the, tell me the story of how you guys met. Okay. Pfeiffer, should I tell it? Yeah, you always tell it best. Is it going to be delightful? Yeah. So... <laughs> yes. Barack Obama was testing the waters of should he run for president? And we were going to the New Hampshire 100 Days Dinner in New Hampshire. So this is yeah, December, December of 2006. 2006. And Robert Gibbs and I are flying from Baltimore on Southwest to Manchester. And we get on our Southwest flight and we're all the way in the back. And I see this scrum of reporters and this like, I guess, fairly handsome person uh, that they are surrounding. And I'm like, Gibbs, who is Lynn Sweet trying to hump up there? And he's like, Alyssa, that's Jesus Dan Pfeiffer. I was like, that's oh. Dan Pfeiffer? And he's like, yes. And so we get to the Manchester airport and Pfeiffer has a town car waiting for him. Gibbs and I got into a broken down minivan. And I was like, so that's Dan Pfeiffer. Because don't forget, Pete Rouse was my boss at the time and always spoke so highly of Pfeiffer, like all the time, but I had never met him. And so I was like, oh, my God. But the real way that we met, fast forward, was when it was our first day in the what was it? What would you call that office, buddy? The one on Connecticut Avenue It was our first campaign office, I guess. It was like it was like we worked before we worked because we rented yeah. a conference room in an office where Pluff rented an office, which is where the Obama campaign started. Yes. And so we were sitting there and I heard Dan speaking with one of his colleagues and they were talking about a young man that they wanted to bring on board. And this young man had been trying to hook up with me just so that he could work for Barack Obama. I figured it out because I'm Nancy fucking Drew. And I swivel around in my, I'm sure I was wearing overalls of some sort. And I was like, you listen to me. If you ever want to be friends, you won't hire that guy because here's what he did. And Pfeiffer didn't hire him. And ever since then, I have owed him all of my positive experiences on the campaign <laughs> that I did not have to look at that person. And I knew him then to be a very good and wonderful person. We put all the Evan by stuff behind us till he was on the shortlist for VP. And, uh, you know, that was how we met and became BFFs. What's very important about that story is it was specifically Barack Obama's trip to New Hampshire on the same day that Evan Bayh had oh, planned right. to be there for the first stop of his exploratory committee period of his campaign, where Obama was so better received that Evan Bayh dropped out of the presidential campaign six days later, which allowed me to get hired by Pete Rouse and David Plouffe to work on the Obama campaign. So it was like a truly life-changing experience in the Baltimore airport on the way to Manchester that totally. none of this would be possible without that. 
I mean, your whole Evan Bayh experience, you know, God, he was a sure thing. He was definitely going to be the Democratic nominee. And then he was definitely going to be on the ticket. And, you know, must be like one of the great disappointments of your professional career to have not seen Evan Bayh rise higher in American politics. I know Evan Bayh very well. He's a very good person. Very nice guy. He actually showed, I think, a rare amount of humility to drop out of the presidential race instead of dragging his family and friends and staff through one he thought he couldn't win. But there's no question knowing Evan Bayh and Barack Obama that Joe Biden was the right choice for that partnership. You think about the two of you guys, right, and where you are now. I mean, Dan, I just think about the idea that a former Evan Bai person, Evan Bai is like, you know, the soul of democratic centrism mm. of that era, let alone of what it would look yeah, like now. Right. I mean, he'd be more conservative than Joe Manchin now. He'd be probably, yeah. probably, if you took his positions, he'd probably be some kind of a Republican at this point. And Alyssa, you left Bernie Sanders, you went to work for John Kerry. Totally respectable thing to do at the time. So it sort of seems like very of another era. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, at the time was considered wildly too liberal for America when he ran for president in 2004 and became the nominee. And now you kind of look at John Kerry and think patrician, buttoned down, centrist. Like there's no space in our politics for these people. Do you find yourself saying things that you go, man, I believe everything I'm saying, but I can't believe I find these things coming out of my mouth because they would been, have been inconceivable at any point, even when you were in the Obama White House, let alone when you were in one of these earlier incarnations of your life. I think that when I worked for Bernie Sanders, I wasn't necessarily as progressive as Bernie was then. I'm probably more like him now. But I think when we were in the White House, like when you're in the White House, it's just this is such a fucking trite thing to say, but it's not about you. It's not about everything that you think and you feel and you see more what the real American people are asking for. And so I think that being in the White House, it's more like I don't know. You're one team rowing in a direction, and it's not so much about what Alyssa feels about any particular issue. But the crazy shit I say now, I think I would have said then. I just didn't for the benefit of Barack Obama. Yeah. I mean, it, like, obviously, it's been 18 years since I went to work for Evan By. Like, I have mm-hmm. changed a lot. The world has changed a lot. My understanding of what is effective politics, how you build coalitions, how you win things has changed dramatically. I, like, I have my own set of policy preferences, views. I am probably more personally progressive than probably a lot of positive American listeners may assume. But like, ultimately, what I care about is how we can elect the most progressive person possible. And there was a view of what you needed in you know, the wake of losing two consecutive presidential elections. And I think this idea that we need a red state governor who can appeal to the people that Bush had won back from Clinton. And that was what most people in the party believed, right? And Evan Bayh was someone like that. And if what we needed to do was win. And I quickly learned that that was not the right thing and that it was not ideological. It was about, could you know, when Barack Obama promised something totally different, a completely different way of looking at politics that spoke to my view that what Democrats have been doing for my entire career was coming up short. They were kind of like moving things around the chessboard. And it wasn't that I went from being a centrist to a liberal. It's that sort of, it changed my view of how, what was possible in politics and expanded it. Well, right. I guess here's what I, what I think about it with you, Dan. And I, I'm, I'm including myself in this. This is not some way to try to say, God, Dan, you've changed a lot and I haven't. I mean, yeah. what I mean is, we used to have conversations in your office at the White House mm. that were just about for stories I was writing or for just yeah. like getting the lay of the land. You were a progressive. The administration was progressive. But the conversation that we would have about how Washington worked, how you guys thought about the communications challenge, mm. how you thought about Republicans, how you thought about incrementalism versus radical mm. change, just the whole framework for the discussion mm. was not that different from conversations I'd had with Democrats 
and with Republicans, frankly, in some ways, in terms of the framing of it for my whole career. You were smart. You knew more about social media or whatever. But the mm. kinds of things that are in your book, for instance, right now, that we didn't have those conversations. They weren't about structural flaws in the whole of democracy. They weren't about misinformation, disinformation. And I know partly it's like things have moved on. The world has moved yeah. and so you've moved. But I just, again, I think about there's an edge now because our politics are so much sharper. The, the belief in the possibility of kind of compromise and incremental change where there were some um, well-meaning Republicans on the other side and that the whole thing wasn't completely fucked. That was not the premise of most of our conversations. Whereas yeah. if I read your book now, which is very good, by the way, it's like the basic premise is, man, everything's really fucked and it's got to be warfare, structural change, mm. and understanding that like all of this stuff is now just in a totally different place than it was not that long ago and for the whole period before that in our professional lives. Or actually, not yeah, just I our think, professional lives, our lives, period. I think the world has changed dramatically. And it, ironically enough, I actually have more faith in the unity in the country and I have less faith in the possibility of a political system with this Republican Party. Anyone who was around in 2004, 2008, and then 2012 to watch how the country has changed on LGBTQ plus rights and gay marriage and all that, it's like stunning to imagine how fast that's happened, including large numbers of Republicans, particularly young Republicans who believe that. Whether you look at polling on legalization of marijuana, dramatic change, like we are actually as a country coalescing. The mere fact of that coalescence is what has caused the Republicans to become so radical and so dangerous and to employ tactics and, and activities that would never would have considered, right? Like there is a fundamental difference between how Mitt Romney handled his loss and how Donald Trump handled his. There's a huge difference between how Hillary Clinton handled her very narrow loss to how Donald Trump handled his. Like we ended up with a, you know, in my book is a product of the fact we ended up with a violent assault on the Capitol born of a big lie told by the president of the United States and supported by his entire party. Everyone, Mitch McConnell would not call Joe Biden for months because he thought it would upset Donald Trump, which created the context for which Republican voters believed that the only way to save their country was to assault the Capitol and try to hang the Republican vice president. Like that requires a different form of action than coming up with like our version of a grand bargain or school lunches of the V-chip. We have to change our strategies to change the evolving threat. I want to talk about the 1-6 hearings and the 1-6 committee in just one second, but I do want to ask one question just Alyssa, to kind of get out of this conversation because we started talking about Obama and I want to come back to him. You guys obviously know Barack Obama way better than I do and spent millions of more time with him. I, I believe I'd known him longer than either of the two of you because we were in graduate school at the same time and knew each other a little <laughs> tiny bit, but you guys know him way better. It's interesting to go back and look at the Obama of the White House. And then I went back and listened to that last interview you guys did on Podsafe, the last <laughs> interview as president, right? You guys barely talked about Trump in that interview. The notion of Trump as existential threat was not really there. His name came up like six times in the whole interview. Mm -hmm. And it was more backward looking about his presidency than it was about that. Obviously, you understood that Trump was bad news. But it wasn't like that interview was anything like the tone or tenor of how Obama talks about Trump now or about the speeches he gave at the convention in 2020, or the things he talks about the threats to democracy. It's interesting just to have seen how he's evolved in this sense too, Alyssa, don't you think? And again, maybe I'm just like saying the most obvious thing in the world, but even him with all of his incredibly calm, even demeanor and that temperament that got him so far, he seems like, you know, he has radicalized, and I don't mean to say he's a radical now, but he has been radicalized by the changes that Dan was just talking about. Well, I, I think when he did the interview, the pod save interview, I mean, remember the day after Trump 
One, Barack Obama came out and said, you know, we have to hope for his success. If we root against him, we're rooting against ourselves. And so we have to hope for his success. And I think that for, you know, those four years, for the most part, he really tried to abide the sort of legacy of the former president not getting too involved in the current president's Michigas. He was definitely thinking a lot of this all along, but there was no upside really for him to engage. And, you know, then 2020 came and he certainly did. And now he's saying what is on his mind because I feel like he has waited the appropriate amount of time to be respectful of what a former a president would normally do. Okay, we are going to take one more break here, sports fans, and we'll be back with more of Alyssa Mastromonaco and Dan Pfeiffer on Hell and High Water. And we are back with Dan Pfeiffer and Alyssa Mastromonaco on Hell and High Water. So Dan raised the, it's the part of the title of his book, which goes straight at the question of the big lie, which actually gets to the question of, like, just say it again for the sake of selling books, battling the big lie, how Fox <laughs> and MAGA media are destroying America. I know how book authors like to hear the name of their books. <laughs> Dan Puffifa, you can get it almost anywhere that <laughs> yeah. they sell fine books. You know, this one six committee has put on a little bit of a, a masterclass over these five hearings that they've conducted so far. I want to hear your point of view about that, but to kick that off, I do want to play this last hearing, the hearing about what was going on in the DOJ and Trump's attempts to basically install a, a puppet to run the DOJ at a key moment in the, the crisis in our democracy and, and the resistance he met at that point. Let's play right now former acting deputy attorney general Richard Donahue talking about a conversation he had with Trump in late December of 2020. This is in, to some people's minds like maybe the smoking gun of the entire thing. Let's play that. Uh, you also noted that Mr. Rosen said to Mr. Trump, quote, DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. H how did the president respond to that, sir? He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. So let's now put up the notes uh, where, you, where you quote the president. Uh, as you're speaking to that, he said, the president, the president said, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. So, Mr. Donahue, that's a direct quote from President Trump, correct? That's an exact quote from the president. As I said, Eric Holder, I believe you know him. He was the attorney general during your administration. <laughs> yes. And I also a guest on Helen Highwater at one point. He tweeted when this came out in the hearings, he said, this is the smoking gun coupled with other testimony, demonstrates both Trump's substantive involvement and corrupt intent, requisite state of mind. I mean, there's so much to say about what we've learned, and I want to go to the macro, but just stay with the micro for one moment, Dan. Did that particular thing stand out to you in the way that it stood to a lot of people, which was, I mean, there's a number of elements even within that, but this notion that Trump was basically like, I don't care that the DOJ has found no evidence of fraud. Just say it. And I'll let my political henchmen on the Hill take over and we will wreak havoc on democracy. That's basically how you interpret that, right? And could there be anything more yeah. incriminating? No, that, I mean, that, that is both, according to Eric Holder and a lot of other legal experts, very legally incriminating. It is incredibly yes. morally damning because yeah. what it says is, I have no sincere belief the election was stolen. I don't care what happened. I don't care what you find. Just say it. And what Trump believed very clearly is that if he could just get the Department of Justice to give his Republican Party, the smallest fig leaf as an excuse to overturn the election they would do. And the thing is, Trump is probably right. 
that quote says everything about Trump. It says everything about why he cannot be anywhere near Trump. He should be able to leave a federal penitentiary, let alone be near the <laughs> White House, and why the Republican Party is so dangerous, because that's what they were going to do. All you need is the Department of Justice. You don't need proof. You just need an excuse. And they couldn't get the excuse this time, but they're damn sure going to make sure they get it next time. Because you imagine mm. if Trump or DeSantis wins the scrutiny of interviews for mid-level Justice Department officials next time around? <laughs> like, I mean, it's just wild. So the reason he wants to put Jeffrey Clark in there to be his stooge at the DOJ, and it's, again, really incriminating, right? Liz Cheney, Alyssa, you know, was very on point about this. She's basically like, look, it's not just that Trump is lying to everybody about the existence of fraud. He's lying about what the DOJ and the FBI had found. They'd found no evidence of fraud. And he still wants them to send this letter to Georgia. A lot of people in this hearing said would have caused a constitutional crisis. I want the DOJ to basically endorse my fake elector scheme, even though I know that you don't think there was any fraud. The corruption and the moral mendacity kind of stacks on top of each other as high as the moon. As we've seen all this evidence of all of that, how do you think the committee has done in terms of how it's done in these hearings and to what end? Okay, so I think the committee has done an incredible job. First of all, let's just like shout out who's ever doing the tech for that, because every time they're about to show a video, I'm like, oh, prayers up for you. But whether <laughs> it is Liz Cheney, Benny Thompson, how they've conducted it, how it's been organized, their focus on having all Republican sort of folks who are testifying. I don't mean this in a bad way, but the impeachment trials felt like a zoo. You know, and I think that in going into this, I had some feeling that it might be not that bad, but maybe not as good as it is. And so, you know, at the beginning of every hearing, they've set up the question. They've proved their thesis that they've set out. And so I think they've done great. I just kind of wish the committee members would stop doing cable news afterwards. I think it diminishes them a little bit. But other than that, I'd give them a 10 out of 10. Dan, do you think this this kind of goes right into the wheelhouse of your book, right? I mean, because... I would agree with Alyssa, right? We're all theater critics. And I was, you know, like, well, I wonder if they're going to be able to do this, a thing that really holds people's attention. And if they wait this long and people have amnesia and can they contain all their worst instincts of speechifying and camera hogging and all the bullshit that always wrecks these hearings. And in fact, even though you're not supposed to say this, made both of their impeachment hearings, I never thought successful at all as matters of political communication, let alone actually impeaching or getting someone convicted, which they couldn't do for other reasons. I was skeptical. And as a matter of just watching them unfold, I've been super impressed and partly because they've been doing it like a prosecution and there's not been speechifying and they've been focused and building what looks like a criminal case, even though they have no ability to issue an indictment. So I ask you, what do you think is having watched this, A, your assessment of it, B, what do you think the proper goal of it is can they achieve that goal? And how does it serve the larger issue that you're addressing in the book, which is the, the role of this big lie and conspiracy theories and misinformation that aren't even really about Trump? That's about what's happened to the Republican Party. It's like nesting dolls of questions, but I almost can't ask one without asking all of them. Yeah. So I agree they've done a tremendous job. And I, the thing that I think is most important about the way they've done it is that you're exactly right. They have learned not just the lessons of the last impeachments, which were by a pure measure of public opinion research failures. Trump's approval rating went up, support for impeachment went down during the first impeachment. When you know you're not going to convict him because of the way the Republican Senate acts, then that's your only measure of success is whether you have moved the country in your direction. That did not happen. What they learned this time, and I think this is also just a lesson of how you communicate in the modern age, in a polarized world of information bubbles and Republicans who live in this hermetically sealed Fox News information ecosystem, is they use the voices 
of trusted sources by the right to make the case against Trump, whether it is his family and his aides and depositions or conservatives with good standing like Mike Pence's counsel or Judge Luddig. There's not Adam Schiff making the case. It's not random people or the sort of well-meaning and impressive bureaucrats who made the case in impeachment. It is card-carrying members of MAGA Nation saying that Donald Trump lied to you about what he believed and he committed a crime. And that's very powerful. In terms of like what success equals, I think at the outset of the process, the view was, is this going to convince all the big lie believers that the election was legitimate? Of course not. That's not how the world works. That's not how people's brains work. Or it's like, is this going to save democracy? Well, like, yeah, if your hopes for democracy depend on a congressional hearing, then no, you're not going to succeed. <laughs> what it can do is it can cut through the noise. Like Steve Bannon, the single quote, and I write about this in the book, that I think best explains how right-wing communications works is Steve Bannon's strategy is, he said, we're going to flood the zone with shit. Totally. We're just going to throw as much stuff as we can out there. And it's going to confuse everyone and sort of disengage independents or non-voters are just going to throw up their arms and say, I don't know who to fucking believe and tune out. And they have done this in a way that cuts through. I know. And they have gotten attention, both 20 million people watching that first hearing, that's 6 million more than watched game six of the NBA finals. That's a big deal. And also, if you look at engagement on Facebook in the 48 hours after that first hearing, for the first time that I can remember in the last decade, all the leading pages in terms of engagement were progressive pages talking about 1-6. So they are cutting through. That, to me, is success. Can you raise awareness yes. of the danger of this party, not just what they did, but what they're planning to do? That'll be success. Thus far, they've been quite successful, in my view. I think there's a strong case for indicting him. I don't know if Merrick Garland will indict him. I think to the extent there was already a strong case, it's been made stronger by what we've learned in the hearings. I believe a former president who's committed crime should be indicted. And it, therefore, I'm for seeing Donald Trump indicted. But I also think you and I and Alyssa all believe the Republican Party has been Trumpified in a thorough way so that Trump got hit by a bus tomorrow. The problems that we have with the Republican Party as being anti-democratic, hooked on conspiracy theories, fascistic, grievance-based, racist, all of that stuff, those don't go away if Donald Trump gets hit by a bus or gets shot to Saturn tomorrow on a special design Trump deportation device. <laughs> I mean, we still have those problems, right? I mean, so at that point, why do we care in a practical well, sense I, about whether he gets, do we care? My, my, not why do we care? Do we care? Does it matter whether Trump gets indicted or not? I really hope that Merrick Garland and whatever, you know, career prosecutors he's working with just look at the evidence and say, can we get a guilty conviction on this person and then proceed? Don't do the Jim Comey, what are the optics going to be? What are the politics? <laughs> right. Oh my God, we're getting too close to the midterm. Like, don't complicate this. If you think you have the evidence to charge him and convict him, do it. I mean, Eric Holder seems to think so. Eric Holder seems to know, would know a lot about that. So I'll take Eric Holder's yes. word for it. Donald Trump's numbers have gone down during the course of this hearing, nationally and right. among Republicans. And yes. I think we should suspect that if Merrick Garland indicts him, his numbers will go up. I fully believe mm -hmm. that that will happen. It'll cause Republicans to rally to his fence. I don't think Merrick Garland should put that in his consideration. But just look at Ryan Kelly, the Republican gubernatorial candidate who was arrested in his home by the FBI in Michigan <laughs> for participating in the January 6th insurrection. And what happened to him? He went to the top of the polls in that race. <laughs> that, I think, is very possible to happen. All of us who are not Merrick Garland or career prosecutors who work for Merrick Garland in democratic politics have to figure out how to indict him with the public and all of his co-conspirators, because his co-conspirators are much more dangerous than Trump. And it is all of them. And, it, and that is what's on the ballot in 2022. So I think we're a little wrapped around the axle because liberals keep, and myself included, keep looking for some evidence that the system works, that if you do bad shit, you will pay a price. And... What we have to remember is that ultimately in politics, the only surefire way to ensure someone pays a price is at the ballot box.
Alyssa, mm. I, I watched the testimony of this former White House aide, Cassidy Hutchison. Yeah, and, and, she and was when funny. she's talking, she's you, right? She's like the Trump White House version of Alyssa Mastromonica, who who's in there. Kind of, yeah. Um, I don't mean literally. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I felt like, you know, a yeah, young woman, no. a young, a young yeah. woman who now is basically trying to tell the truth. I was trying to just say something nice. I know you probably very different in a million ways. Mm -hmm. I do want to hear it though, because I want to listen to her talk about all of these Republicans in the house yeah. who are asking for pardons preemptively, all of our favorite people. <laughs> so let's take a listen to Cassidy Hutchinson. Mr. Gates and Mr. Brooks, I know both advocated for there to be a blanket pardon for members involved in that meeting and a handful of other members that weren't at the December 21st meeting um, as the preemptive pardons. Uh, Mr. Gates was personally pushing for a pardon and he was doing so since early December. I'm not sure why. Uh, Mr. Gates had reached out to me to ask if he could have a meeting with Mr. Meadows about receiving a presidential pardon. Did they all contact you? Not all of them, but several of them did. So you mentioned Mr. Gates, Mr. Brooks. Um, Mr. Biggs did. Mr. Jordan talked about congressional pardons, but he never asked me for one. Is more for an update on whether the White House is going to pardon members of Congress. Mr. Gomer asked for one as well. And Mr. Perry asked for a pardon too. I'm sorry. Matt Gates, Brooks, <laughs> Biggs, Gomert, Perry. Marge Taylor Green also makes that list of people who sought pardons. Have you ever sought a pardon, a preemptive pardon for yourself, Alyssa? No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. Dan, have you ever set up, sought a preemptive pardon? I didn't even know that was an option. <laughs> I didn't either. It's like I could, I could, like, I could like leave. Get out of I could leave the White House card. with that. Yeah, exactly. Leave the White House with a jumbo picture, a signed picture of Barack Obama, and a lifetime get out of jail free card. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I'm asking. I'm asking the two wrong people because the truth is, both of you guys are like, if I'd known it was possible, I would have asked for a preemptive right. pardon, and <laughs> one, right. and maybe and a and a lifetime pardon too. Is there yeah. a way I could get that thing to have like a 30 year timeline on it? My question for you, Alyssa, about this, and then I'll leave this topic behind, and we can bring this thing to a close, but. I watch that woman. I think she's in a difficult position, but she's come forward. And I look at Liz Cheney and I've given her a lot of credit for what she's done. But man, it is hard right now to say anything at all complimentary about any of these Republicans who've decided to come forward and tell the truth without having the progressive world come crashing down on your head saying they are not heroes. They're doing nothing. They're just doing what they're doing. And I'm always like, look, guys, I'm not excusing any bad behavior that they had in the past. They should have done earlier, yada, yada, yada. But right now... I think it's good that they're telling the truth. Here's and, how and, I and feel. And at the time, some of them actually engaged in, as we found with these DOJ guys, maybe they did other things I don't like. They, at the moment of truth, they dug in their heels and they didn't capitulate to Donald Trump. And I think in this world that we live in, I want to give them a little credit for that. I think it's a characteristic of grace to be able to do that. I'm going to say something very controversial. Uh-oh. The person who I give the most credit to actually is Liz Cheney because she will pay the biggest price for this for saying this is wrong and I'm going to prove it's wrong. And so I give her credit. When I listen to good old Alyssa Farah on CNN and everybody else being like, here's all the stuff that was going on at the time. It's like, girl, you're the one who stayed. I feel bad for the woman, Cassidy, who everyone was coming to ask her for pardons. And when you watch the video of her testimony, she's kind of laughing. When they bring up Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's like, I didn't talk to her. You know, like right. as <laughs> if she is an alien or a bad person, which she is, she's both. Okay. And so I thank the people testifying 
for doing the bare minimum. And I appreciate that. The people who really dug in their heels, like a lot of those guys, at D- I will say that my opinion was changed of a lot of the folks at DOJ because of when this was all going down, I was like, well, they can just leave. And now I see that it's better they didn't leave, right? It's better they didn't leave that Jeffrey Clark was a real fucking dingbat. But I think of all of them, the person I give the most is Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger because they'll pay the biggest price in the end for having done the right thing, I think. I mean, Dan, they, you do not want to be an environmental lawyer in America today after the way they, they <laughs> shit on, they, they, they shit on that guy that like over and over. Just a, just a, just a, just yes. a scathing condescension from those guys yes. um, about, about that. Wait about for that an oil spill. His lack yeah. of credentials is like, yeah, the, the only thing you have in common with an election lawyer is the fact that you're, you're especially starts with an E. It's like, man, they're <laughs> fucking brutal about that guy. This is terrible. Well, it's just amazing. It's funny that they think it's the most Republican thing possible, even among the Jeffrey Rosen's world, to think that the only thing an environmental lawyer can do is help an oil company during an oil spill, right? Like, spill. what about some clean air and some clean water, people? <laughs> okay, that's genuinely funny. Um, look, I mean, <laughs> it's completely, completely true. It's really quite astonishing. And I just, I asked for your very brief comment about these Republican congressmen seeking pardons. It is fascinating that the notion of Trump basically going, hey, man, just listen lie for me and I'll get it to my cronies in the Republican House and we'll, we'll take it from there. I just need to get it to those guys. And, you know, the fact that the committee decided that this is something you never see in Washington, a congressional committee that basically said, we're going after our colleagues. We don't give a fuck. Yeah. I mean, I know that like Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger don't care about the far, far, far this nuttiest kook balls in the party, but still it's just like decorum up there is like a special committee doesn't turn its guns on anybody in its membership and say, that's it. We're happy to crucify our colleagues in the House. That's the way they think of it, regardless of how nuts they are. Yeah, I think that norm probably fell when a handful of their colleagues helped organize a coup attempt and ended in a violent assault (laughs) with armed militiamen stalking the hallways trying to murder them and their stabs, at which point it feels like you can throw around a subpoena or two without upsetting the decorum in the House. We crossed a Rubicon on January 6th in terms of just the danger that Republican members have. This is not like some moderate dispute over campaign finance reform, the Ethics Committee. This is life or death. People lost their lives that day because of the way these people acted. My last question for both of you, one final piece of sound. This is an older thing. Just because I want to end on an up note, you know, the Senate voted for a gun bill. So another thing that hasn't happened basically in our lifetimes. And the thing that I reflected on, and I really wanted to ask you guys both about this, is about this moment that still stands out to me as, I'm not saying it's causal, because I don't think it is, but Matthew McConaughey going to the White House. You guys are both <sighs> former White House strategists who focused a lot on communication and were both very culturally savvy. In this White House, I would say, that there haven't been a lot of instances where there's been culturally savvy, well-timed communication. I don't think they're doing a terrible job. This stood out as a flourish and a moment. And I thought McConaughey was incredible, but I do want to play it. This is June 7th. McConaughey goes to the White House after Uvalde, and that'll be our last sound for the show. May Day wore green high-top converse with a heart she had hand-drawn on the right toe because they represented her love of nature. Camilla's got these shoes. Can you show these shoes, please? Wore these every day. Green Converse with a heart on the right toe. These are the same green Converse on her feet that turned out to be the only clear evidence that could identify her after the shooting. How about that? I, I I haven't seen that kind of thing happen in the White House briefing room very often. I mean, he was, I thought, awesome and incredibly genuine and, and emotional and said all the right things and actually went on to say some things that needed to be said about 
how these kids could only be identified through DNA in a lot of cases. And like, it, and it came at a moment, right? I want to hear both of you guys just talk about that, about the decision to put him in there at that moment and whether you think it mattered. I, I do. I think he was maybe the best messenger. I mean, he's from Uvalde. He had been down there for a week. His remarks were wonderful. I've loved him since he was Jake Brigands in A Time to Kill, and I saw it 15 times in the theater. For the most part, the man does no wrong in my view, but just just half kidding. But no, he must have had some conversation with someone in the White House where they saw that he was capable of this and they saw where he was going and they thought to themselves, this is the right person, a real Texan, someone who is undisputably proud of of where he's from and what he cares about. And he has kids. And, you know, I thought it was as smart a move as when Dan advocated for doing between two ferns during healthcare. Oh, oh, that's a very high bar. That's a very, it's a very high bar. Yeah. One one is obviously a more serious and important thing. What I think is notable about it, like Alyssa is exactly right about the power of his remarks and the emotion in which he delivered it, is it does speak to what I think has been the greatest challenge for Joe Biden as president. And this is not Joe Biden's fault. It has a lot to do with what's happening in the world, but is getting attention grabbing the nation's attention and getting coverage and dominating the conversation, not just being taken live on cable, but dominating what's happening on social media. It's just been very hard for them to do. It's not really Joe Biden's natural way of being president is to just be part of the conversation in the way in which Trump certainly was and Obama probably was a little to a more extent because of maybe a little more culture of celebrity around him that Biden does not have, which is probably to his credit. And so that was very powerful there. What I think also is like, obviously, the main argument from Matthew McConaughey was that we shouldn't have assault weapons on the street. And this very important bill that's passed has nothing to do with assault weapons. And those are still on the street. And in some cases, you now maybe have a constitutional right to carry those in the supermarket. Thank you, Supreme Court. But the question is, like, why, like, why did Mitch McConnell support this? And the reason is that Democrats tend to confuse, in my mind, popular issues and powerful issues, right? The popular opinion on guns is 80-20 for these provisions. But that 20% is way more fired up and cares more about stopping those than the 80% has to date cared about implementing those laws. And that did shift after Uvalde. And it shifted to such an extent that Mitch McConnell thought that not doing something would cost him the Senate. Even, Even if it's just for a brief moment, we'll see if we can sustain it. But you shifted the power to the pro gun safety party. The same thing happened in Florida after Parkland. When Governor Rick Scott, a bunch of Republican legislators, signed a bill that's actually more expansive than what the, the Congress just passed today. Like, it is evidence that we actually can make progress. It may be slower, more incremental than we want, but we can shift the politics of this issue. And if you shift the politics of this issue, and this ties back to everything we were talking about here, you can actually make real change despite some of the structural advantages that Republicans have. Alyssa, I want to be optimistic and say that, of course, it's not enough. But it's something and that in this world that something is better than nothing. Absolutely. Something might. And again, given the numbers that we know, if it wasn't for the fact that these other things like raising the age of gun ownership to 21 and some of these other things, forget about assault weapons, just some of those other things like that are so popular. It does feel like what you need is for something to break. There needs to be a watershed in the way that. Democrats learned the opposite lesson in 94 when some of them paid with their career for voting for the the assault weapons ban. You need to have some inverse of that now where something has to happen where people like they take the vote and they all survive or where there's an object lesson. And that once you get that on the board, it could be the beginning of more. We'll take progress over perfection any day. 
All right. So I have Alyssa Mastromatica. I asked her one question this morning by text that was really important. I said, if, if I think about the Pod Save America guys, Favreau and Tommy, love it. And then Pfeiffer. If they're the Beatles of podcasting, which one is Pfeiffer? And I stipulated it's obvious that love it is Ringo. So that's off the table. And Alyssa was right on. She immediately had an answer. Dan, what do you think her answer was? I have to be honest. I know very little and care very little about the Beatles. I mean, <sighs> I said, okay, look, I have so a very truthfully, me too. <laughs> not a huge Beatles <laughs> fan. Just, really, but I still yeah. knew who you were. I don't know that I would have known Love It Was Ringo. I think oh. I know who you would say Favreau is. Are, but, uh, wait, are I you trying to say that you don't know? Like, are you actually trying to? I mean, I, I'm not trying to make you into a like. I'm not going to beat you up about this, but you're like, I don't know who Paul McCartney is. I no, no, no. I know. Is, really? I know. Like, I know who I John mean, Lennon is. I know who Paul McCartney is. I could name all the Beatles. I'm familiar with that they exist. I've spent very little time in my life listening to them. It's not really my what was thing. The, what's the What's the band that I should have used? That would be. No, I think the Beatles is a totally fine. It's a totally fine band. Okay. I generally, and this is not to pander to the host of this podcast, but I generally, if I'm trying to take a group of people and apply them to a musical group for the purposes of understanding them and making some jokes, it's always Wu-Tang every single time. Oh my God. Well, Good that, grief. That that's so Wow. So yeah. what if I ask Alyssa which member of Wu-Tang Clan is Dan? Is I think, I think Alyssa really, may feel about the Wu-Tang Clan like I feel about the Beatles. So I yes, probably yes, would have yes, been yes, like, Wu-Tang, right. let's, 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 let's talk about which member of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get her answer. Okay, so he was John Lennon, of course. A bit understated, great lyricist, deeply yeah. feeling. I feel like Paul McCartney's a bit more of a showboat. Yeah. Love George Harrison's music the most, but you were John Lennon. And Dan, which member of Wu-Tang Clan do you imagine you are? That's a great question. Pro- uh, I don't know. I was probably like from the Killer Bees. I didn't make the main stage. I had to open for him. <laughs> oh my goodness. Can we just say that like, like if we're talking about the like great you god dead, maybe maybe it was you god. I don't know. The most minor member of Wu-Tang Clan. I sort of think of you you're a little you're a little I would say there's like a little jizza going on with you. You know, there's I don't like, know. you know, it seems you know, sure. Brilliant lyricist and a, a great communicator and a guy who kind of thinks that of like communication in almost scientific terms, a kind of like a master there we uh, go. of those things. What member of the Grateful Dead would you say he is uh, most like? Oh, Alyssa. I would, this say, is I would say that if he was a member of the Grateful Dead, he would probably be. Actually, I'd say that he's probably Mickey Hart, a real innovator, really like pivoting with the times. And which one of the members of the Podsafe team would be Pigpen? Love it. <laughs> I don't even like, know anything about see, like Pigpen. Ring, I was going to know that's where that was. See, that's where that was going. Ringo and Pigpen sort of go together. Again, again, if Love It's listening to this, live on. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. I didn't mm. say anything about Pigpen. Pigpen was pretty great. Yeah. Anyway, listen, you guys are both awesome. And Dan, the misinformation disinformation thing is like my obsession right now. And I think the book. I want to say for anybody who was expecting more of a discussion of that here today, I'm going to a if Dan will come back because the stuff in the book about that stuff is really, really great. It's really interesting. A sophisticated read on maybe the essential issue in our modern politics, the misinformation, disinformation, epistemic closure, hermetically sealed, different information spheres, world that we now live in and how to try to win within it and pierce it in general for the good of the Republic. It's called Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA media are destroying America. So will you come back? Will you talk about it with me more uh, on some I other occasion? I lo- would love to do it. And I won't use any Beatle analogies or anything. And uh, <laughs> The Grateful Dead, you're familiar with that band, though, right? I mean, you know, less so. Like, I know they exist. I know Alyssa cares about them a lot. They, even less so than... Even less so than the Beatles? Absolutely. Like, I've seen some Beatles documentaries. You know, 
suddenly the nature of your friendship is becoming kind of questionable to me. Like someone who doesn't really know who the Grateful Dead is, is like a friend of yours, Alyssa? Yeah, How does that work? Because he doesn't compete for my fandom, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, thank you guys. You're both astonishingly nice. Thank you, John, for having us. Thank you. Helen I Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Dan Pfeiffer and Alyssa Mastromonaco for being with us. And remember to pick up Dan's new book, Battling the Big Lie, How Fox, Facebook, and the MAGA Media Are Destroying America. It is fantastic. And if you like this episode, please subscribe to Helen I Water, share us, rate us, and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman, Grace Weinstein, co-creator of Helen High Water, Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor, Fonda Mwangi is our researcher and assistant producer, and Marshall Eisen, the man, the myth, the legend, he is our executive producer. 